Welcome to Health Equity Conversations, a series focused on understanding healthcare payment, equity, and how payment can be used to address inequities rather than perpetuate or worsen them. In today's conversation, I speak with Drs. Bob Phillips and Andrew Bazemore. Bob is the Executive Director of the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare at the American Board of Family Medicine, or ABFM. The center aims to create space in which patients, health professionals, payers, and policymakers can work to renegotiate the social contract. The center does so by seeking to define value across the healthcare spectrum, how to measure it, how to improve it, and how to engage and develop leaders. Andrew serves as a Senior Vice President of Research and Policy for the ABFM. In that role, he is responsible for managing all ABFM research functions and staff, and developing and implementing an enterprise-wide strategy for research. Andrew also co-directs the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare. Bob, Andrew, and I discussed a series of issues related to the use of small area-level indices in healthcare payment and care delivery change. There's a lot to learn and reflect on from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Bob Phillips and Andrew Bazemore, thank you so much for joining this episode of Health Equity Conversations. So good to be with you, Josh. Thanks for having us, Josh. I'm excited to dive in, but before we do, I'd love both of you to share a bit about your own backgrounds and paths to your current careers. So Josh, I'm Bob Phillips. I'm a family physician and was looking for an opportunity that would let me combine clinical work with policy and research, which is a very unusual threesome to find. And I really geared my training in family medicine to that opportunity and was fortunate enough to be asked to come to Washington, D.C. in 2000 to become the assistant director of the new Robert Graham Center, a health policy research center, part of the American Academy of Family Physicians. And I've just never left. I continue to see patients a day a week and have worked um, in now two different health policy research centers in Washington, D.C., doing research and translating it for policy. Josh, I give lots of credit to my path to Bob. I'm also a family physician. I was a social science double major functionally in college, heading down a very different path. I think relevant to today's conversation, I had the good fortune of spending some time in rural Bolivia in what would be labeled a community-oriented primary care approach to serving Quechua-speaking indigenous populations and really seeing how you know, again, a, a an approach to those populations and their specific needs, absent some of the payment model challenges we face in this country, led to a, a very different set of outcomes, despite not having any resources. And my path from there led to um, very clearly to family medicine, but also a public health degree, uh, working in three different community health centers, having the pleasure of getting to help start one in Baltimore. Um, and seeing all along the way the failings of our current payment models to deliver the kind of care that populations and patients needed in primary care. Uh, and then I've had the, again, uh, the opportunity to work with Bob while setting up that community health center in Baltimore to come to the Graham Center as a scholar, learn a lot from him and ultimately be a, a deputy director there, then the director and now a co-director of our Center for Professionalism and Value in Washington, D.C., continuing to work on these same issues. I also love that trifecta of clinical policy and research, and I think all will come to bear here in our conversation. So maybe we can start here. As I understand it, you spent the last few years, at least, if not beyond, working on advancing a discussion about how to use payment 
and policy options for social risk adjustments. And we'll unpack some of these terms for people who are less familiar. And before we get into those details, can you take us back to the beginning of this work and just share what was the rationale for doing it? The justice started for me back in the early 2000s in trips to the United Kingdom and to New Zealand, where I found that they were adjusting payments based on the social risk of their populations and using geographic measures of deprivation to do that. In both countries, they not only enhance payments to healthcare, but to social services as well. And it really winds up funneling more resources to the practices who are caring for those populations. So it makes it viable for them to serve those populations, but also, you know, there's just intrinsic value in being able to identify and meet people's social needs. So we, we came back and, and have written actually a series of papers over the last 15 years. And when Andrew and I were at the Robert Graham Center, I actually developed a related deprivation index for that use in the United States. But in June of 2021, uh, we wound up having a, a workshop that we, I should say January of 2021, we wound up having a workshop and publishing it as a health affairs blog about the real opportunities with um, demonstration projects through the Innovation Center at CMS to do this. And it led to the workshop series that we held last year, really focused on Medicare and Medicaid policy, but trying to influence all payers and health systems and thinking about how to do it. And uh, have just it's been so gratifying to see CMMI and CMS come out now with three different demonstration models that use the deprivation index to do this very thing. And we're hoping that it uh, can lead to this more broadly. Andrew, anything you want to add to that? It was global experience similar to Bob, more in low and middle income countries like South Africa, Honduras, and Bolivia, where despite far lower resources spent per capita on healthcare, you were supporting community-based organization, primary care partnerships, and you had funding models, you know, absent pure fee-for-service that propped up uh, interventions that would address social needs. And, and then with Bob, working on a number of different indices, watching um, as we work through health professional shortage area process redesign, you know, the ability for the, um, the policymakers federally to direct resources to get workforce and teams into places where they were needed was not matched by the service side uh, payments. And, and I think in a, um, a time before we were really talking about the social determinants of health, uh, or labeling them as such, uh, recognizing that we needed simpler ways for payers to understand how to direct those needs. And then Bob's filled in uh, the rest beautifully. I think this is such an important topic. As you know, this series of conversations is really around how do we use healthcare, but also health-related interventions and strategies to improve health equity. So based on those discussions, convenings, as you mentioned, with uh, policy and practice leaders focused on Medicare and Medicaid policy, can you summarize for our listeners here, what are some key strategies or focus areas for implementing social risk for payment adjustment in Medicare and Medicaid? And to the extent that there were strategies mentioned that would be more fruitful or less fruitful, can you share maybe a few of each? So I'd say um, after three convenings now, there's never perfect consensus, but these were opportunities for leaders of major commercial plans as well as uh, federal staff, uh, folks from academia and beyond to get together and try to build consensus. And I, I think the general agreement that came out of some of the workshops included the notion that there, there's a real gap in knowledge around and use of these small area deprivation indices. And an agreement that 
they are ideal when you're trying to adjust payments for social risk because they decrease this burden of data collection. It is so hard, speaking as a clinician, to reliably, consistently gather information from individuals about their social risk. As important as that is, it's difficult. And it's equally difficult to sustain it so that it can prop up a payment model. And especially for the most disadvantaged settings. Um, the small area deprivation indices as the group came together and agreed you know, with big concerns about gaming and any kind of new payment adjustment, reduced that potential. And they offered a transparency for payers and providers because they were built on uh, publicly available common data that they could all uh, see. Uh, in presentations, there was an agreement that two of these small area indices in particular, area deprivation index and social deprivation index, uh, were felt to be particularly reliable for the most at-risk patients. And that's been shown in a number of different studies. Um, and that, you know, again, uh, you had still challenges and a trade-off, uh, particularly for disadvantaged persons living in lower risk area areas that were identified by these ADI or SDI um, indices that you might actually miss uh, those living in those space, but that that was a trade-off that probably um, uh, would just have to be wrestled with in other ways. Um, specifically, the group addressed for Medicare that we would have to maintain a budget neutrality, but that funding adjustments would would make necessary the need to, uh, to look at how you can build out infrastructure and benefit dollars. Uh, if you looked at models, there was a particular fondness for uh, CMMI heart payment models, inclusion of neighborhood social risk and comorbidities. There was a lot of conversation um, about the benefits of the Maryland, the current Maryland all-payer heart payments that Bob's going to speak to momentarily. And that even as we were working on the payment side, that clinicians and teams in the health systems should already be trying to adapt their practices to address social needs directly and in partnering with um, community benefit organizations. Um, Bob, I'm going to let you jump in. There was a lot more said in those, those early conversations. Well, I think one of the things that the group acknowledged fairly quickly was that the people most in, in need of this support are least trusting of healthcare systems and payers and are not as willing to share their social needs. And the people who are also at most risk are the, those least likely to come in for healthcare and be screened for social needs. And so we wanted a, a process that would be um, highly reliable and that would apply to the entire patient population that a practice was taking care of with with the, the risk of some false negatives, people who live in more affluent areas but that have social needs, we're a little bit comforted by the fact that those folks tend to have better life outcomes regardless, just because of the, the their neighborhoods. So those were those are some of the concerns. The other is the people with highest social need, their lives are in such flux that if they have uh, if they have housing this month, they might not next month. And and relying on the healthcare system is the process for screening them and assigning them. Services just not very reliable either. There was, um, as Andrew alluded to, that the model that CMMI rolled out in Maryland, the heart payment model, um, which is focused on health equity, combined the area deprivation index with um, medical complexity scores and actually did a study that led by Kate Sapra and Steve Chaw that showed that that combination, the people who were at the top quintile of both ADI and medical complexity had uh, 24% higher healthcare costs down the road. And, and that gave them the kind of authority to, to build into this model. The group also pointed to the Massachusetts model, which has been operating now for five years. 
not so much for the how the payments are adjusted, uh, but how the funds flow. And so there's a lot of concerns about just putting more money into the healthcare system, like you said, Josh. And so the thing that Massachusetts did that the key meetings enjoyed was the fact that they they created a half billion dollar pot of money that's outside of the healthcare system, but that physicians can basically write prescriptions against. So if a patient has needs, they can write a prescription that gets them into a community-based organization and brings resources to that community-based organization to meet their needs. So that those two models were the ones that people would like to see expanded. The last thing I'd add to that, to Andrew's excellent comments is that um, with the growing interest in adjusting payments for social risk, there is an inclination to create proprietary measures. So we could see an arms race coming where every health system developed their own, every managed care organization developed their own, every Medicaid program vendor developed their own and sold that back to the healthcare system. And no one was willing to work off the same indices and, and, in primary care, you know, when we have an average of nine to 13 different payers, we just couldn't afford to have nine to 13 different ways that we were being paid um, to adjust risk. So we really wanted to just kind of blow that out of the water and come out with, you know, a gold, a declared gold standard and an effort to develop even better um, so that there was a level playing field. And Bob, I think we'd agree since we broke the, um, the two convenings and conversations into a Medicare and a Medicaid focused conversation. You better believe that came up in the Medicaid conversation. We really can't afford as much as 50 states innovating drive some good in the health system. In this instance, we can't afford to have 50 different approaches, um, particularly with uh, modern movement across state lines uh, to social risk payment adjustment. And, and I think to double down on what Bob said, it came up in the Medicare side how Medicare Advantage had a particular opportunity to fund both medical and non-medical providers alike uh, through their pathways. Massachusetts really, you know, um, highlighting the way and and that this relationship that there should be a curvilinear relationship in how you do adjustments, not just thresholds. Um, you really see with increasing need, remarkably different uh, resource requirements to achieve health. So, but and Josh, to that. To that last point, one of the questions that was a little bit unresolved, other than to say that it should be curvilinear, is that um, how much do you pay? How much do you adjust payments? A lot of the models so far have been adjusted based on downstream costs rather than on what does it actually cost to put someone in a house? What does it cost to feed someone? And so we have another study. We had some preliminary information for the convenings, but we have a study that puts a price point on it. What does it cost for the average patient um, to meet their housing needs, transportation needs, food needs, how much comes from federal payers and how much uh, needs to actually help support the practices in, in managing that effort. Uh, so we're, we're glad that those things are coming together so that if, if we make decisions you know, with other payers, that the, the price point can be right too. One of the challenges I think sometimes is that the intuition here that we want to help people get the needed social services and that there are social drivers of health it's hard to argue that. And yet there's so many layers to this issue. So I want to unpack it a little bit for our listeners. I think what I'm hearing in some ways is if we accept the idea that we should adjust payments somehow for social drivers or different ways to do it, the individuals and populations that perhaps most need this data to be captured are least trusting. 
those groups and organizations that take care of the so-called safety net often are not resourced, right? And so if you put the burden on clinicians and organizations in some implicit way, you may be biasing away, right, from the groups that really need to capture that information. All that said, people would say, well, but don't you think that in the ideal world, we'd have individual level data on everybody? Do you see a world in which we use these small area indices alongside individually captured? How would you guide someone who says, this is great because it's pragmatic, it's universal, we can use it now, but don't we want to go to something better in the future? No, I think it's a fair question, Josh, and it's one that came up in the convenings. And our our, our point is you, you need a process for identi- identifying people at high risk and for allocating payments uh, sufficient to meet those those populations' needs. You need individual data to figure out what does this person actually need? What is the, the thing that needs solving for them and what do we allocate resources to? And so the the uh, the small area indices we think are helpful for giving a practice enough resource and then they screen the patients individually and they can then use that resource to meet specific needs and to partner with community-based organizations to achieve that. So it's a yes and. Um, what, what we came out pretty clear with was a consensus that we shouldn't use those individual level need measures as the mechanism for adjusting payments, but the mechanism for making the right prescription. Josh, I would just really emphasize the and. Um, it is too easy to get into debates of individual versus area, and they both offer so much, to your point, to a future and ideal state of really understanding need. And as the clinicians, the, the three of us are, we have to have the individual data to really tailor any sort of resources or funding that come through um, ecologic adjustment really down to the patient need. It, it also, there's precedent for and. You know, when you look at the ways, since I mentioned health professional shortage areas, that they're designated. There are geographic designations. There are population designations. One makes the case for the latter or even point designations based on particularly small information, either about individual groups or populations. This, this has been done. And in an age of um, big data, we're only getting better at capturing at multiple points the individual. I, I'm optimistic that we'll have better capture going forward, but I still think Anne will exist for the reliability, transparency, and reduction in game ability that the small area indices still offer. Let's go one level up. More recently, I've heard this line of thinking that if we try to adjust, but we fix it on the cost, right? Downstream costs, you end up codifying things like historical disparities in care, you know, barriers of access. And you may, in the pursuit of precision in your adjustment and predicting costs, actually end up predicting things that actually don't service equity. And so that's led some people to say, you know, maybe we do that only in select cases. Maybe that's led people to say we shouldn't adjust in certain cases. How are you thinking about this issue? Yeah, I'm going to handle that in a one-two punch. The first is if we adjust payments based on downstream costs, then then you're giving inadequate, you're, you're risking giving an adequate resource to the clinician who's screening those, and then they don't, they can't actually meet the need. And that's the real concern is that you're going to going to take burnout and turn it into even worse because now now I have an obligation. Now I'm accountable for screening for these needs, but I still don't have enough resource to meet them. The second issue is, and this is what the managed care organizations and our convenings really taught us, is that, you know, right now underserved areas suffer from the, the, the fact that pricing of services in those neighborhoods 
is based on historical expenditures. Historical expenditures are based on inadequate access. And so you wind up in this vicious cycle of underpricing underserved areas uh, and, and managed care organizations don't want to go there. Practices can't afford to locate there. And so one of the other benefits of doing this adjustment based on small area deprivation indices is that you actually create new markets. You create incentives for people to care for those populations because they're going to get more resource. And so I, I think that actually to the most pressing issue that you raise of not solving the equity issue actually may turn out to be one of the most potent um, products of this. One thing I would add, Josh, is the problem you mentioned, it's not a uniquely U.S. problem, but the fragmentation of our payers and the absence of patience that comes with it only heightens the emphasis on cost and historical um, uh, to current cost comparisons. I, you know, it, it does take patience to imagine investing with an accountability to the fidelity of fund flow, to the community-based organizations, to the clinicians, and an acceptance that you're, you're playing a long game uh, where you're going to see real changes. And frankly, since you're using small area indices, you'll see small area outcomes uh, hopefully start to rise with patients. Um, but it's understandable that payers who regularly see their, their clients or their beneficiaries move from one to another payer struggle to move beyond the, uh, the cost-based uh, evaluations only. Whether it's through your work in international contexts or in, in these convenings, are there any things that people are interested in this, they can look ahead and you can say, we might get a little turbulence as we implement these things and how might we kind of anticipate those a little bit? Where whole health systems are working currently, it, it is those with more of a national approach and then even a state like Vermont and its blueprint for health that took a long game, you know, again, approach to addressing social risk and supplying more resources to connect, particularly primary care, uh, foundational primary care healthcare side elements with community-based organizations, um, uh, organizations that are meeting social need and bring them together and provide the superstructure and the support that started to see differences, but differences measured over time. And frankly, I think the most overt comparison I'd make now, it's one of the, the uh, countries highlighted in our chapter is a, at best, a low middle income nation, Costa Rica, which now has greater longevity than the United States, despite a fraction of the investment in healthcare, because it has really played the long game in addressing local, uh, local and social risk in building up primary care infrastructure, but not just primary care in the medical sense, primary healthcare infrastructure, combining public health primary care, community-based organizations working together to enhance that longevity. Singapore also has passed us in longevity. I won't say that it has achieved primary health care at its highest, but one of the things that they have long played is that long game. We're working for decade-to-decade changes in population health, not just what we can achieve in cost savings over the next year, if that's our, you know, our measurement of, um, of success. I think I think there have been some lessons from the demonstrations. Um, the heart payments that started a year ago in in Maryland. So practices got you know I know one practice got a half million dollar check in the first quarter of the year, and and their question was, what am I allowed to do with this? So there's a there's a need to help practices even once you hand them a check. There's a need to help practices understand. This is so you can hire community health workers. This is so you can hire behavioralists. This is so you can work with that food bank in your in your community to to be able to refer patients. 
So there's a, a need to help practices. There's a need to help the community too. A lot of these community-based organizations are starved for resources. And so having them inundated with new patients is not so helpful. And what the community care collaborative or cooperative, community care cooperative of Massachusetts taught me, and this is a managed care organization of 18 different federally qualified health centers, is that you, you also need an IT infrastructure. So I recognize this patient in front of me has a need of housing. It's difficult for me just to send them down the street to the community-based organization that can give them a housing voucher. So they actually built an IT platform that makes that referral electronic. It automatically pulls down the resources so that when the patient arrives, the community-based organization has the money. They can address the need and communicate back to the practice. The patient showed up. This is what we did for them. Um, please reinforce this at their next visit. And that small managed care organization has pulled on 80% of the funds in that bank in Massachusetts to meet social needs because they've created this IT platform that's helped those community-based organizations flourish. So there are a number of things that will have to flow on from adjusting payments. And, and we can't expect these practices to suddenly start solving social needs without that kind of support. I'm so glad you mentioned that because once you reallocate the funding and the resources, there's all the, the what I'll call care delivery and also the kind of community-based touch, touch points and services. What do you think is the pragmatic, maybe optimal way of figuring out what works there? Well, my best example of this, Josh, is, is when the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality launched Evidence Now. That was, it was a, a research designed to help practices what is the coaching? What is the support that a practice needs to change its operations? Um, they also funded an evaluation program that came alongside it called Escalates that was run out of the Oregon Health Sciences University. And, and that parallel process of not just evaluating, but learning what is it that practices are struggling with? What are the innovators doing? It, it actually helped make that whole process work better and gave uh, the agency not just a sense of did this work, but what does it take to make it work? And I thought that was just such a brilliant example of uh, how evaluation can actually improve implementation. And, and I would love to see some of these demonstrations have that kind of parallel evaluation facilitation function so that we don't just deem them failures because it you know, it, it takes three to five years normally for these things to set up if they don't have that level of support. Very well said. And, and would only add, we don't historically have the patience to build continuous learning systems out of stacked pilots. Even with the wonderful work that CMMI has been doing, we rarely see continuity over multiple pilots and learning. Uh, in primary care, we had the good fortune of having CPC plus become CPCI. So that gave you a little more length of time. And I think to Bob's point, it really showed in some of the areas that uh, where the one, two and three year evaluations weren't showing the kind of um, utilization cost outcome success that were perhaps hoped for that with a few more additional years and the addition, I would add to, to what Bob said of qualitative audits, really going in and interviewing the clinicians and the patients who, despite not showing some of those early cost utilization metrics, were saying, this is really working. 
having one set of benchmarks, having the kind of support superstructure and the ability to learn from each other is really working and helping. It was a it was a, a baseline benchmarking problem for so many places. We started with too much success and had very little delta in your metrics, but boy, do we feel like this is working that would help. And back to our something we lack historically, our, our patients, it takes building out that continuous learning system model. Pilots have to be part of something bigger. And so that you start to stack together the lessons from each and have tracking over time. And then finally, um, your accountability mechanisms. You have the ability if you adjust payments as, as our consensus um, you know, emerged from our, our panels and our groups, accountability for how resources are spent can also yield great information on the variability of how those resources are spent that helps to lead, you know, when you pair it up with claims data and the qualitative side, lead to a better understanding how one system and its unique way of doing things can inform another, how those are scalable or not scalable. You know, you can use the accountability mechanisms to feed the evaluation mechanisms too. Well, Bob and Andrew, you know, I can tell from your comments here, you've just scratching probably parts of the surface of what was talked about in these convenings. And again, you've reflected multi-year beyond 10 years of work studying this issue, helping provide data on this issue, advancing policy insights on this issue. If some of our listeners want to learn more about this topic, either kind of foundational reading on this, what's more recent, they want to learn more about the convenings, what are some things they can check out? Well, Josh, I would point back to some uh, articles that we published in Health Affairs and the American Journal of Public Health that lay out this argument and point to other countries uh, as examples of what we're talking about and how to adjust payments for social risk and the importance of it. That we'll be we'll be sharing links with those to you. The initial convening uh, had a health affairs uh, blog that came out in June of 2021 that I'll share with you that um, sets up the conversation for the workshop series. Back in uh, January, we had a Commonwealth to the Point blog that came out to summarize the workshop and then a more complete summary that came out in the health affairs forefront uh, in February. Uh, probably after this con- this conversation comes out, there'll be a JAMA internal medicine piece that sets up the how much to adjust payments in order to meet needs. I would just add specifically to look at the November 2016 health affairs and the how other countries use deprivation indices and why the U.S. desperately needs one as a foundational step to understanding particularly the U.K. and New Zealand approaches. Um, and then the only other um, element for the, the technically curious reader, the University of Wisconsin the creator of the Area Deprivation Index and the Robert Graham Center, which created the Social Deprivation Index, both have dedicated web pages where if you want to dive in and understand both the strengths, uh, the weaknesses um, involved in using small area deprivation indices and what they're built around would be a great resource. And Josh, just to cue it, um, with Stanford University and the U.S. Census Bureau, we have a project that we anticipate over the next two years will we'll produce one or more gold standard social deprivation indices at very small areas with census set up to be the steward of those, again, to try and prevent a flood of proprietary measures from coming into this space. And with Robert Wood Johnson's support that we hope will broadly help us to disseminate this work. Bob Phillips, Andrew Baysmore, thank you again for joining today. More importantly, thank you for the work you have done and you're continuing to do in this space. I really enjoy the conversation and I trust our, our listeners as well. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Josh. Thanks so much, Josh.